I'm going to start on a bit of a, uh, probably a crazy note for you, but um, uh, at risk of being misunderstood, about a year ago I picked up a, a book called um, The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where um, I'm not attempting or moving in the direction of communism or socialism, but, you know, it, it, it obviously was something that had a huge impact on the 20th century, and and all I've ever heard is everything negative about it, much like you. And I grew up in an era where there was a Cold War. And in boot camp, I was actually trained to, you know, stab dummies that were visualized as commies. So to me, they were always the enemy. And I thought, you know, here's this, this massive group of people in our, in our world who, who actually believed it. That means there has to be something appealing about it, even if, it's, um, even if there's flaws in it. And so I, I picked it up. I read Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. And I, and truth be told, I, I, I can see what the appeal is in his book. That is, he looked at the world. You know, he's a German philosopher and writer and all that stuff. He looked at the world, and he saw that, by and large, the poor were exploited by the people who were wealthy and rich and had land. And so, as I understand what he's written, he was actually intending to do a good thing by ridding the world of this social evil that oppressed the poor by redistributing wealth. And so, in one sense, you could say that his intent was, was, was noble. He wanted to see poor people liberated. And that's part of why it was um, so attractive. If you happen to be a person on the, on the underbelly of society and you heard these truths or truth claims that he was, he was laying down um, in terms of thought, well, it would appeal to you. It, it, it holds out the promise and the hope of, of a liberation, especially in countries where there was this high sense of uh, monarchy and, and division between low and high class. I mean, it would just speak hope to the, to the masses. And so, you know, here I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, I can see the appeal in this. And it, would, it kind of provides a, a, a quote-unquote gospel to the poor um, of, of liberation. And he laid that, that, that the mental philosophical groundwork for what we know today as modern communism. Um, of course, we also know that it, it really didn't work, at least didn't work in Russia after 70 years. And, 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 and ironically enough, you know, the, the very people he was trying to help bring liberation to were the very people he left impoverished by his, his understanding of how to change things. But his intent seemed to be good. And, I, you know, I was reflecting on, on what I read, and I was reflecting on his, his, uh, his, uh, his intention and his... Uh, thought that he believed would liberate the poor, and, and two things struck me, all right? And I'm going to bring a contrast to this, obviously, to Christianity. Um, one is the, the deep-seated sense of desperation that the human heart has for freedom. I did something so profoundly deep. Doctor, you look at a lot of the controversies today, um, whether it's over the abortion issue or it's over gay rights and, and gay marriage, kind of really deep down what's driving a lot of the passion in that is a desire for, however ill-conceived, a desire for freedom. That's a, that's a, it's a deep desire and longing of the human heart to be free. I mean, we understand as Americans, it's a part of our, our DNA is this idea of, of, of freedom. But then when you, 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 you create a truth claim, a, a kind of gospel, so to speak, that speaks to that need, well, then that's a, that's a potent combination of, of touching the, one of the deepest needs in the human heart, a desire for freedom, and you give people a, a structure of thought like 
communism did, well, then that is a powerful combination and explains why much of the world was communist in the last century. Those two things, you know, this truth claim that met the need, deep need of the human heart to be free, that's a powerful combination, an ideology that meets or promises to meet the deepest needs of, of the human heart. By the way, is this a total side note, but, you know, we tend to live, I think, in a, in a, in a, um, in a feeling-oriented society in which people want to feel things, and not so much a thought or reason-oriented culture anymore, especially in the younger generation. People want to feel things. And um, uh, to me, and, and I believe this to be biblically true too, that when people gravitate towards feeling and bypass thought and reason, it doesn't really bring any kind of sustained change uh, to someone's life. I saw the commercial last week at the Super Bowl of the little puppy in the Clydesdale, and I was moved in my heart. I thought, oh, that's really cute. I felt something. Didn't cry, but it didn't change me. Uh, watched We Were Soldiers and, 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 and saw the, the young, I think he was a captain or lieutenant, Jack, who dies on the battlefield with his unborn daughter's little bracelet on his arm. And I, I wept like a schoolgirl when I saw that, and I was moved terribly in my heart, but it didn't change me. Um, but um, when a person can, it just I'm trying to say right here that when a person can appeal to the deepest needs of the heart through truth, even if it's, in Marx's case, quote-unquote truth, it has the power to change. Truth that appeals to the, to the desperation of the heart. You, you come to Galatians, this book, and the Apostle Paul is, is not trying to bypass our minds to make us feel something. He's actually engaging our minds for the sake of appealing to something deep, deep within, a deep need, a deep, desperate need that we have. And, and I believe that need is, is freedom that we all sense, world senses. But he's, he's, he's trying to convince us through the mind to see things differently to look at the world differently. Um, and I believe that's why much of this is, is grounded in logical argumentation. And if you've been here, we've been looking. He's trying to outline for us the true gospel, the only true gospel that truly liberates the human heart to be what God created it to be, in every sense, true freedom. And he's, he's, he's argued um, for this true gospel of grace alone, um, through faith in Christ alone, um, by appealing to experience, that's Galatians chapter 3, 1 through 5. He's also appealed to his Old Testament, um, relating the promise to Abraham, to the law given to Moses, and saying that it's the promise to Abraham that is the primary one, and he was accepted on the basis of faith alone. He's our forefather, therefore trust in the Lord as the basis of your acceptance by God. It's that faith that, that brings freedom, faith in what God has done. So he's argued these things out to convince us in our minds and persuade us in our minds to think a certain way so that then we could experience it on the other end. Now today we come to another portion in Galatians where he is going to um, kind of unfold for us the relational benefits of the gospel. That is, how does it affect us in our relationships with God and each other? How do we see ourselves? And um, then going back again, in a slightly different way, back to the foundation of the gospel. What makes it possible for this to happen? A very real um, truth claim that actually brings freedom. So let me begin with uh, the relational benefits or results of this thing we call the good news of what God has done 
um, that can be accessed by faith alone. Beginning in verse 26, we read, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and just as a side comment, um, verse 27, when he says you were baptized into Christ, naturally the first century believers would have thought of water baptism. That is, that was the first initial public expression of the fact that they actually were followers of Jesus. And it still applies today. Jesus taught us to go about teaching and baptizing. So if a, a person, if you're here this morning and, and you're, uh, you've come to trust in Christ and you believe yourself to be a Christian because you trust in Christ, then the outward expression of that is baptism. And if you've never been baptized, you should be. It's a way of saying to the world and to the church Christian community, I'm one of his and I trust in him. Mind you, it doesn't save you. That would completely deconstruct this whole argument. But it is an expression of your faith. So end of little side comment there. Baptism is the expression that we have put on Christ or we've come to Christ. Continuing now in verse 28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And you'll notice that that our relationship to Christ permeates this little section of text. In Christ, into Christ, on Christ, in Christ, you are Christ by way of belonging and possession. That is, all of the relational results come out of our faith connection to who Jesus is. That's what he means by in Christ. It's that intimate faith connection that is not just an intellectual one, it's an experiential one in which we abide in Christ and he abides in us. And because of that connection with Jesus and that relationship with Jesus, um, he goes on to specify these are the, the, like the results, what has happened. And the results can be summed up in my own words as this, is um, that in Christ, that is by nature of our connection with him, we receive a new identity, equality, and value. Those three things, identity, quality, and, and value. In terms of identity, you know, right here he tells us in verse 26, in Christ Jesus, and he's speaking not to the Jewish people, but to Gentile people too, non-Jewish people, people who are slaves, people who are landowners. Karl Marx would have had a problem with that. He's saying to them, you are all sons of God. Sons. Now, unfortunately, years and years of church attendance have evacuated that word and that sense of son from all of its vast richness, both emotionally, relationally, and legally. But I, you know, you just have to declutter it and realize what it means when he says you are all sons of God, all of you who have faith in Christ, sons. I was reminiscing about what it meant to be a son, I don't know, four or five years ago. My wife and I are hiking up to Harney Peak in the Black Hills. Anybody been to Harney Peak in Black Hills? It's like the highest point in the Black Hills, 7,000-something feet. And we had to be going with a group of people related uh, to my wife's birth family. And uh, it just so happened some of the people we were hiking with were uh, Connie Balmer and two boys, her two boys. And if you don't know the last name Balmer, that's um, the soon-to-be-retiring CEO of Microsoft, Steve Balmer. Now, Dad, Dad Steve Balmer's not there. He's flying in on his own personal jet later. Um, but we're just hiking along a trail, and there's... Steve Ballmer's, Forbes said he was the 51st most wealthy man in the world. It's, I don't know how many billions are in his, in his bank account, but I'm just walking along thinking, these are his boys. 
Like, what do you ask for for Christmas when you're Steve Ballmer's sons? And I just, you know, I mean, all of the things he owns and things he can do in private chess, I just said, these are his boys. And I started to think about what it means to be a son just as a result of that little encounter and what does it mean to be the son of Steve Ballmer? Wow. Everywhere you go, it's like, that's Steve Ballmer's son. Just think about it in terms of relationship. It's one thing to be able to say you know someone or have met someone like a Bill Gates or a Steve Ballmer. I mean, that's pretty cool. You can drop the name and say, yeah, I've met him. That's kind of cool. It's even, I don't know, better to say, hey, you know, I shared a meal with Steve Ballmer or, Steve Ga- or Bill Gates. I, that, I mean, that's a little bit more intimate. It's even more intimate to say, hey, we're first cousins. We've been to reunions together. We're, we're related. It's an entirely different thing to stop and say, he's my dad. You know? He's my dad. And, and you know, apart from the possible exception of marriage, is there any stronger relational word? And even in the ancient times, you know, property and wealth didn't pass to the wife. It passed to the firstborn son. That means that legal connection was even stronger between son and father than between a husband and wife. And, and by the way, Steve Ballmer doesn't do anything for me, all right? It was just kind of a cool reflection on the little, you know, path up there. But Paul's saying to you, and he's saying to me, that you are sons in the fullest sense of the word. The sense of access. I mean, a son can go to his dad anytime and say, hey, can I have 20 bucks and go to the movie? You know, you just have that freedom. You have access. You have privilege. You have the loyalty and the protection and the provision of a father. And in the fullest sense of the word, he's saying that the gospel has produced for all of you sonship, or if you happen to be a woman, a daughter. This is a generic term to, to include all people who have faith in Jesus, regardless of your gender. And that is how you're to see yourself, and that's how we're to see each other. Not as um, church attenders or people who are a part of a church family or members, whatever. It's just to see each other. It's, these are sons and daughters of the Lord in the fullest extent possible and legal heirs to everything God has. That's pretty amazing. That's, a, that, that's, that's part of our, our new identity is that's how Christians are to see themselves, regardless of their place in the world. But then also this sense of equality, and, uh, of value, and so forth. You notice what Paul says? He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, this must have ticked off some of his, his Jewish friends because he's really saying now there's no more distinction anymore, at least not in terms of worth or value to the Lord because we're all sons. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Talk about leveling the field. Many commentators believe that Paul is responding to a prayer here that Jews used to make in the morning. Jewish men used to make in the morning. And that is, um, there's an ancient prayer, Jewish book, that goes back probably to the time of Paul and even before where a Jewish man would get up and he would pray and give thanks for three things. Thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a slave. And thank you that I'm not a woman. Now that, that prayer was written not to be offensive to women, although I'm sure it is here. Um, but rather, it was a recognition that within the old system of things, there were restrictions placed upon certain groups of people. A Gentile person, a non-Jew, wanted to worship at the temple. He could only go so far. 
If you were a Jewish woman, you could only go so much farther and so forth. That is, there were these restrictions in access to God as laid out in the system. And so he's simply, the Jewish man simply praying that he's grateful he doesn't have the same restrictions that others have to the Lord. And Paul right here, in contradiction to that prayer, is like, you know what? That stuff doesn't matter anymore. There isn't any distinction now in your relationship with the Lord. No more restrictions. No one can get further in, and no one has to remain further out. We are all sons, he says, and therefore, there is a sense of equality in God's family. Those old ways of distinguishing value, which oftentimes that that restriction carried with it that sense of social inferiority. You saw yourself as less of a person. And here he's saying, this is what the gospel does. Those old distinctions by which you rate each other and you have access or restriction, those don't exist anymore in Jesus. As you have access to the Father in the same way that a son and daughter do, no more, no more of those old distinctions that either restrict or create a sense of inferiority. They don't exist in Christ. You are all one in him. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that it's that your gender doesn't matter. It does. It doesn't mean that your ethnicity doesn't matter. I mean, those are providential good gifts of the Lord and used in different ways. What he is saying is that they no longer matter as an essential thing um, in your relationship with the Lord or God's family. Those, those things aren't important anymore when it comes to our relationship with him and relationship to each other. And the fact that there is therefore no, you know, difference between Greek and Jew, that doesn't mean that there is no, um, what you might think of as authority structures that, that, that have been set up in, in the family of God. But those authority structures are, are functional and not essential in terms of assigning value. I mean, Jesus assigned or commissioned apostles to bear authority in the church. Um, and Paul went around and he or appointed elders and deacons through whom God would use to protect and provide for the church and and those things are still true, those functional roles. But, but here's the thing is that there's, when it comes to an essential level, there's no difference in value. And I find it intriguing that even those authority structures in the New Testament are often embedded in the sense of commonality, equality, and family. So that the great apostle Paul, when he, he, he talks to the church, he doesn't speak like as a pope to a, to a, to a, to a, a plebeian. But he speaks for, as a brother to a brother. You know, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy. I mean, you get a real sense that he knows he's one brother amongst many brothers. And the authority he has is a, is a functional one. But, the, but the, there is an essential, um, equal value of all God's people as sons and daughters of his and should be treated as such. Now, that's, that's pretty revolutionary. And by the way, I say that because there still is, within the church, this sense that some people have a better, closer ear with the Lord than others. It's, from time to time, it hasn't happened a lot, but I'm venturing to say there's more people that think this way than actually speak this way, but I'll get someone who comes up and says, Pastor Dan, could you pray for me? And there's no, no problem. You want me to pray for you, I'll pray for you. But then when, 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 when words like this follow, then there's a bit of a problem theologically when they think that, well, if you pray, well, God's going to listen to you. Like, I'm just a congregant person, right? I, like, you're, you're the pastor guy, and so 
you're like, like somehow up on top of the ladder, and, and he, he bends his ear to you in a way he doesn't bend to me. And that is a complete denial of what Paul's saying here. That's not how it works. Listen, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a son of God, and so are you. That doesn't give you or me any more ear from our Father than someone who's a bishop or a cardinal. You see, that's, 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 that's what he's laying out. These are the, the, the benefits of, of what the gospel has done for us. It is, it, is, it, is, it is given us this identity. We are sons and we are daughters of the Lord in the fullest sense and heirs to all of his, his realm. And, and at the same time, we are, we are, we're seen as equally valuable in his kingdom. And therefore, we all have direct access to the Father and to the throne. And so we're supposed to come with boldness knowing he listens to all of us. As I said, do you think about this in the ancient context where the, where the world was drowning in class distinction and slavery? This is Paul saying, listen, this is a gospel that liberates slaves and the poor, and it also liberates the rich from the slavery of wealth as it, it brings uh, this, this sense of equality and new identity, and, and this is supposed to form our thinking. This is how we're supposed to see that the Lord sees us as his sons, valuable infinitely as children of his. How we're supposed to see ourselves and how we're supposed to see each other. And where God's people think this way by faith and realize that, it actually works. It actually works. It changes the dynamic and the fabric of relationship. And people on the outside of the church look at people getting along in ways that they just simply can't understand because the gospel has brought about this revolutionary change in family. The old distinctions no longer apply. And by the way, every day, the world outside of the believing community of faith presses down upon us Distinctions of worth and value. Whether that's giving us definitions as to what constitutes beauty, what constitutes success, what constitutes respectability, and it becomes this system of oppression by which we're almost forced on the outside to try and perform so as to feel like we're worthy of the world's praise. And... To the extent that we listen to those voices, to the extent that we listen to that false gospel, is that to, to the extent at which we exchange the true freedom of a son or daughter of God for the lie that your worth is based upon what you do. And only this truth can bring freedom. And so that's why we, we remind ourselves of it constantly. This is who we are. This is who we are. This is who I am. This is who you are. So that we can live in that reality. And only in that reality is there freedom. So here are the uh, relational results of the gospel. I said results. What we have in Christ. Now, how does it happen? I mean, on what basis does it come? Marx looked for his ideology and his argumentation, economic theory as the basis of this change this gospel of his the fact of the matter paul is goes on in in verses one through seven to say once again that 
this gospel is based entirely upon the work of God. In fact, you're going to notice that the Trinity is found in these seven verses. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Although the name Father um, is not there, it's implied by the fact that it says the Son. Let me read this. I mean... This is in case I, I mean this. He's, in case we didn't get it the first time, he's like arguing again from a slightly different vantage point because he wants us to get it. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now he draws the analogy to the, to the Christian faith. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And by you know, elementary principles of the world, he's thinking of Mosaic law. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that's the father reference, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those uh, who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's the word, Father. Verse 7, so you were no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, the first part is just an analogy, you know, of, of, of childhood, in which he's saying, and you have to use a little imagination because we don't have slaves in our culture, but you know that the child of a, of a, of a rich, wealthy man is, in that time, was often uh, put under the, um, the authority of a, of a servant. And so the servant would raise the child, and that child that's being raised by the servant, um, his life looked really no different than the slave's own son. And we, we can still imagine that today. I mean, most of us, if we grew up in a, in a good home that was structured, there were house rules that you had to live under. And sometimes those rules felt oppressive. You got to get up in the morning. You got to brush your teeth. Those are still good things to do, by the way. Um, you had to go to school. Most of us didn't like school, but we had to go. We got home, and we had a fixed time at which we were to do homework. And I, I don't know of many kids who like doing that. You know, Go to dinner, take out the garbage, feed the dog, mow the grass. And you will be in bed at 9, and on weekends you're going to have a curfew of 11 o'clock. There's this rigid structure of rules that we grew up under, many of us. Some of us didn't. And Paul is saying, listen, um, prior to the coming of Jesus, um, those rules had a purpose. That system had a purpose. But with the coming of Christ and with the maturity of the Son, because that doesn't last forever. When you turn 18 and leave, you know, those house rules really no longer apply. And that's, that's his point. Is that God's people at one time were under the supervision of these house rules called the law of Moses. But with the coming of faith and the coming of Christ, those no longer apply as they once did. Now you live in the freedom of what it means to be a son or daughter. That's his point. We're no longer a slave to those things. But the way in which God released us from that, getting to the point of the foundation, is notice verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God, the Father, sent forth his Son. This is the Father initiating the greatest rescue plan ever in the history of heaven and earth. I mean, and that's true throughout the whole New Testament. The architect, designer, and author of our salvation in its entirety comes from the throne of our Father and from the initiation of our Father. That's John 3.16. For God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only Son. 
That's 1 Peter chapter 1, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in view of his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Like, he knows it ultimately comes from the Father. But you'll notice what the Father does is he sends the Son into the prison. That's what it's called a few verses earlier in chapter 3. The prison under the law. And he was born under the law in this system of rules, which were not oppressive to him because he had a perfect heart. And he delighted to obey his father perfectly and completely. But at the proper time, laid down his life on the cross, absorbing the curse of that law for all who would believe. And that's what the son does. He sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem. That is to pay, to satisfy the debt that all of us incurred because we're all by nature lawbreakers so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, he goes on to say, God has sent the spirit of his son. That's the spirit. That's the third member of the Trinity. Of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You know, at the center of this good news is is, is not a, a humanistic philosophy. It doesn't call upon us to call forth the fullness of human strength and power to somehow make something happen. At the center of this thing we call the gospel is the work of the triune God on our behalf. The Father initiating in love. And the Son laying down in his life and redeeming in love. And then the Spirit of the living God coming into our hearts to change the condition within I mean, think about that. Jesus takes care of the outside condition of the guilt that we bore and the wrath of God that we deserved. And he bore that coming down upon us, but then he also changed the condition of our hearts. When we believed, he, he sent his own spirit, his own life, to alter the direction of our, of, our, of our hearts and our inclination. So that now, instinctively and almost spontaneously, we now relate to God not as some distant, mechanical, cold being, but, but as Father, in the fullness and the richness of what that means. Just, again, sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's one of the evidences that the Spirit of God lives in you and you're actually His Son. And it's not just, as I said, a mechanical, well, I'm going to call God Abba. I think he's speaking of something that takes place from deep within the sense of spontaneous calling out the same way that a two-year-old in his crib will cry out instinctively for his mother because he knows. And he doesn't have to reason his way to it. He knows. She loves him. She knows she will hear him. And she knows that she will come. It's instinctive to the heart of a very young infant child to call out to the one he knows inwardly, even before he can even speak, that his mother loves him or father loves him. And that's what happens is there's this this orientation of the heart that brings this, I now relate to, to the one who created me as, as father. And that instinctive, spontaneous sense of trusting and looking to him and calling to him, that's the sign of the Spirit of God alive in your life and the fact that you're a son or a daughter of his. But you see the, the whole picture here. Like the triune God, father, son, and spirit working in concert with each other laid the foundation for this whole new situation in which we could be called sons and see ourselves as sons to establish our worth and our value as his own children. 
And that is, that is the foundation stone of, of, of the gospel. It rests upon the Lord, and that's Paul's whole point in the gospel. The whole gospel rests upon the working of the Lord, the working of God, Father, Son, and Spirit in concert to bring us home, to free us from this enslaving world with all of its um, systems of distinction and value and worth and, and to, to liberate us so that we truly can live and know what it means to live. And our job, brothers and sisters, is to believe it. Our, our job is to wash our souls in it each day and allow the voice of the gospel to be the authoritative voice in our lives, not what everybody else says of us or what the world says of us. It's, it's his voice in the gospel. It has to wash over and over again. You know, I was thinking about this, and, and uh, there's, a, by the way, the kind of the by summation of it is the, the Father initiating, Son redeeming, and the Spirit turning our hearts toward the Father. That's, that's, that's the work that God has done on our behalf. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about um, January 1st, 1863, in which um, Abraham Lincoln uh, issued an executive order. Many of you know what that order was. It's called the Emancipation Proclamation. January 1st, 1863, he declared that the slaves in the 10 rebellious states or colonies were free. And wherever the Union soldiers would go and kind of take down the rebels, they would come into town where there were slaves and they would read this Emancipation Proclamation, this executive order on the part of the President of the United States that the people were free. One person who wrote about that experience was a man by the name of Booker T. Washington, who was nine years old at the time that he heard the proclamation of that emancipation. And he wrote about it in his autobiography, and it's just gripping, because I'll tell you, the proclamation that God has made through the Son is infinitely greater. But you can feel it in what he writes. He wrote this, he says, As the great day drew nearer, there was more singing in the slave quarters than usual. It was bolder, had more ring, and lasted later into the night. Most of the verses of the plantation songs had reference to freedom. Some man who seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. After the reading, we were told that we were all free and could go and where, and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children while tears of joy uh, ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant, that this was the day for which she had been so long praying but fearing that she would never live to see. At this point, all the ears that heard that paper read had a choice to believe it or not. If they believed that the executive order was true, then they were free to leave. They could walk out of the plantation, off that place of oppression, in complete freedom, if they believed. What I want to say to everyone here, and this is not just for a person who doesn't know Jesus, but a person who knows Jesus. Our Father made an executive order by the simple power 
of the fact that he's the creator of the universe and he has sent his own son, spilled his blood for our sake. And that executive order is that we are free. We are free. You're not just a man. You're not just a woman. Not just a German and not just Filipino or Jewish. You. You're a son. And you're to live in the freedom of the simple fact that I've declared you my son through what I've done. The question is, do we believe it? Even Christians, do you believe it? Because the degree that you believe it is the degree to which you experience the freedom of what it means to be a son of God. I hope you believe that. I hope you tell yourself this each day because this is the gospel that changes the world. Not the one that's grounded in political philosophy or economic theory, but one that's rooted and grounded in the triune God who's gracious and loving, who's done everything necessary to bring us home and make us sons and daughters and one day free us from not only the presence of sin, but the presence of death itself, where we will experience the truest freedom we've ever, ever imagined. And that is the hope we have in a gospel that frees people. And I hope you'll wash yourself in it each day and know who you are because of what Christ has done. Amen? Lord, grant us eyes of faith.